Amen. Well, this morning, we will be continuing in our study of the book of Acts. And uh, where we left off in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas had just finished a missionary journey where they had gone across to the island of Cyprus, then north to Iconium, then to Lystra and Derbe, and on to Antioch. And they passed through Pisidia, and they went to a whole string of cities that I won't even attempt to butcher the names of. But all along the way, they were establishing new churches. And uh, so let's read our passage this morning. We're in chapter 15, the book of Acts. We'll be going verses 1 through 21, if you want to turn with me there. Acts 15, beginning at verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to their brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared that all that God had done with them but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, and all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. 
For the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Before we consider this, let's pray. Father, your strength is made perfect in weakness this morning. My part is to supply the weakness. And Lord, I ask you would provide this strength. Bless your word and let the truth ring loud. In Jesus' name, amen. These churches that they were establishing as they swept through this area were founded primarily among the Gentile populations. Now, not exclusively, for they would begin by preaching in the synagogues. And then we reach into the Jewish, uh, or into the communities in general, and those communities were primarily Gentile. They went reaching the peoples of these communities with the love of Christ, and this is how the gospel spread. Now, you and I would think this is great. This is fantastic news. It's something to celebrate. Maybe with a pig roast, right? <laughs> we would say, who cares if they're Jew or Gentile? People are being saved. What else could matter? But here we read that not everybody felt this way. And just as we experience ourselves in life so often, here in the end of chapter 14, they were on a spiritual high. Their ministry is wonderfully productive. They're being encouraged in the fruit of their labors for the Lord. All is good. And then we hit chapter 15, and the great feelings they are experiencing come slamming to a stop. They have to transition from the energizing and exciting process of seeing churches established and growing to experiencing division in the church, to having as elders of the church to face a doctrinal untruth that was being foisted upon these new converts. Let's read again verse 1. It says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Who are these men to say this? We read that they were certain men from Judea. They were actually from the church in Jerusalem. And they were very traditional Jews that had accepted Jesus. They were Christians. They were Christians from a Jewish background, but they believed in the Lord Jesus. And they came up to the church in Antioch and said, Hey, Paul, you and Barnabas are not teaching it proper. You're wrong. You can't be telling these Gentiles that they can come straight to Jesus. What they have to do is to come through Moses first, and then they can come to Jesus. And they were passionate about this. They traveled over 300 miles along dusty roads to bring this message, to come to Antioch and to correct Paul's theological error or what they saw as error. And they were serious. They didn't see this as some minor doctrinal point. They were insistent that salvation was not genuine without first submitting to and full compliance with the law of Moses. The question here, the root issue and the main point, is how is someone made right with God? What was necessary for restoration of the broken relationship between a holy and a perfect God and a sin-riddled, rebellious man? And the irony of what the Judaizers were attempting to teach is this. As hard as they tried all their lives to obey the law, 
deep down, they knew it was an impossible task. If they were honest with themselves, they knew that daily they failed in fulfilling the law of Moses. Finally, God's grace was shown upon them too, and salvation could be theirs. Yet they tried to instill the same impossible standard that they had lived to the Christian faith. And what's the result of that? Grace was removed and the law reimposed. Perfection and discipline became their God. Now why would they do this? After they've tasted the grace, why would they do this? There is a strange proneness in each of us to make our opinion a practice and a rule for everybody else. To judge all about us by our own standards and to include that because we do well, anybody that does not do as we do must be doing poorly. If we can establish to others that we are right, then in our own minds we are fully right without error which can feel extremely satisfying. This teaching and the act of forcing the Gentiles to become circumcised would subconsciously draw the Gentiles into believing the Pharisaical stance that obedience to the law was necessary, necessary for salvation, even preemptive to grace. And this posed an insidious danger, that this teaching could obscure the freedom of God's grace and the sufficiency of Christ's cross. If the cross is not sufficient for all, then it's sufficient for none. And conversely, if obedience to the law is a precursor for salvation, then salvation would be derived from man's actions, not God's grace. This is without a doubt a direct and dramatic violation of the first commandment. In effect, man is elevating himself to the power and role of a saving God. And this is not solely the concept of a tiny fraction of Christians from Jerusalem. Believe it or not, we do this daily, you and me. How often do we allow ourselves to let the seemingly innocent thought, I have to do this or I have to do that, to show that I'm saved, to confirm that I'm saved, whether I'm showing it to myself or to someone else. Stop it. There is only one thing that saves, and that is the blood of Christ. I can't add to it. I can't take away from it. I can't make it more than what it is. This is the rub. This is the error of their belief. Anytime anything is either added to or taken away from the gospel, it renders that belief system feckless and actually quite dangerous. You or I cannot improve upon what Christ has done. For are we better than he? Do we have the capability to improve upon what the Holy One, the perfect Adam, the creator of all things has done? Hardly. Likewise, we can't remove any aspect of the gospel and still call it the truth. The gospel is actually quite simple. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, came to earth a man, submitted to the will of his Father and the law of man, was crucified dead and buried. On the third day, he rose from the dead, victory over death. His horrible, 
yet willing sacrifice on the cross covered all sin, every sin ever committed or to be committed. If anyone willingly submits to Jesus Christ as their Lord, meaning they completely supplant his will for theirs, he is forgiven his sins and restored in right relationship with the Heavenly Father. That's it. There is no more, and there is no less. And to the gospel, add to the gospel, and you are claiming Christ is not sufficient. Remove from the gospel, and an essential element of the gospel is denied, and thus we are denying the whole. But just as Paul taught, a man can only be right with God on the basis of what Jesus had done. But this does not mean we can ignore God's laws. Obedience to God's law does not bring salvation, but salvation should instill within the believer the desire to fulfill God's law because the believer desires to imitate Jesus who completely obeyed his Father's will. In his commentary on the book of Acts, Matthew Henry stated, The Christians and ministers are engaged in controversy. And those that should have now busied in enlarging the dominions of the church have as much as they can do to compose the divisions of it. When they should have been making war upon the devil's kingdom, they have much ado to keep the peace in Christ's kingdom. How true this is. Consider this. We know our mission as a church because Christ himself told us what it is. In Matthew 16, Jesus declared that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. More literally translated into English today, hell cannot withstand it, meaning the church. That has the definite inference of the church assaulting hell, the church being on the offensive, attacking hell. Now, if I'm going to battle against a formidable enemy, and make no doubt, Satan is a formidable enemy, I'm not going to diminish the effectiveness of my forces by needlessly encumbering them with additional gear and material that they don't need. It's going to slow them down. I want them nimble and able to respond to the fight as needed. Furthermore, in preparing them for battle, I'm not going to instill divisions within their ranks. I'm, not, I'm going to do just the opposite. My goal will be to unify them, to bind them together in shared purpose and mindset. What would the enemy want? They would love to see my soldiers rendered ineffective and fractured. By demanding circumcision for the Gentiles, the Judaizers were unnecessarily burdening the Gentiles and in the process, seeding division within the church. This was just the opposite of what should have been occurring, was actually aiding and abetting their enemy, our enemy, Satan. This is precisely why the issue was of such importance to Paul, Barnabas, and Peter. Likewise, today, we should be careful of the expectations we place upon new believers. Fruit of the Spirit is an expected result from the beginning time of faith, but an expectation that should be metered based on, in proportion to, the level of discipleship given and received. Also, we need to be careful that expectations of faith are only those expressed by Christ through his words while here on earth or through the Holy Spirit in the written word. Yardsticks on the church doorpost to measure hemlines, the banning of recreation on Sundays, 
other such issues, they're not in the scripture. They are man-imposed and therefore are to be avoided. For the end result of such, such false measures of faith can easily be the same as that of the Judaizers, that is, adding to the gospel. Growing in faith in Jesus does not occur through the outward rites of the flesh. Circumcision can't make you a better Christian any more than being branded makes a cow taste better. It's simply a visible symbol of who owns you. Now, I warned you, Steve. I've seen Steve's Highland cattle. They're big, they're massive, they're beautiful. In fact, now, now Carrie wants one, but I'm sorry, babe. The chickens, the ducks, the geese, we, we, got, our, we got recovered. Even if we haven't raised cattle, we've all learned about the branding of cattle. An owner places his mark upon them, declaring to anybody that sees them, those are mine. It's not done so much today. The point is this, whether his cattle are branded or not, they belong to Steve. The brand doesn't make them any more owned, it's simply a symbol of being owned. In the same way, circumcision doesn't purify the Gentiles. Circumcision is but an outward sign of the Jewish designation being chosen by God. Circumcision or any religious rite does not create faith. Growing in faith, having your heart purified is done by the Holy Spirit implanting faith in you and leading that faith to the blood of Christ, which cleanses all from sin, both original and actual, in which all men are defiled. Faith by, itself can, faith by itself cannot achieve this. It all has to do with the blood of Christ. The spiritual purification eliminated the need for circumcision, made it un unnecessary. For physical circumcision was but physical, while salvation is the circumcision of the heart. The hearts of men are filthy and need purifying. They are originally polluted with sin. This is the case of all men, and this defilement reaches to all members of the body. The heart is the seat of impurity, which only God can cleanse. He promises to do it, and he does do it, and only he can do it. Man cannot. To make a clean heart is a creation work, which is peculiar and unique to God. The heart cannot be purified neither by ceremonial rites nor by the works of moral righteousness, nor by humiliations or tears, nor by submission to gospel ordinances such as baptism, but only the grace of God and the blood of Christ, which the Spirit of God sprinkles upon the heart. This is the, believe, the blessing the believing Gentiles enjoyed in common with the believing Jews. Now, there's a very clear and poignant reason this account is recorded in Scripture. Just as we read here, this is not a small issue. It's really central to the validity of our faith. That is why Paul and Barnabas addressed it as they did. If they had just swept the issue aside, it would have been poisonous to the gospel. They recognized that this was the central issue of Christianity. What was being weighed here was precisely what brings salvation. These religiously proud people were attempting to dissuade new converts of the validity of their salvation based on, upon their personal pride-filled 
customs. Now, keep in mind, these men were truly saved. The issue wasn't imposters of the faith. They weren't wolves in sheep's clothing. They were saved. The problem was that they hadn't completely left their prior beliefs behind when they were saved. They were attempting to meld Jewish customs and Christian doctrine, but that is adding to, not rounding out, faith in Christ. They had turned to Jesus, but they hadn't turned away from something they believed before. This is another essential element of the Christian faith, that upon salvation we must completely turn away from our old ways, not simply turn towards Christ. Think of it this way. Jesus is perfect, without sin, in complete unity with the Father. We, as unrepentant sinners, are certainly not perfect. We're the opposite, deep in sin, without any unity with the Heavenly Father. We are 180 degrees opposed to Christ. If he is pointing north, we're pointing south. And when we submit our lives to him, we don't simply turn five or 10 degrees. We have to turn 180 degrees toward Christ, toward him, away from the direction we were going. We have to be on the same vector Christ is. These men from Jerusalem, these Jews who believed in Jesus Christ, were actually Pharisees who had been saved. The problem is that they were so deeply rooted in their prior belief system that they didn't turn that 180 degrees. Instead, they tried to keep elements of their former selves while turning to Christ. And this raised a big problem in the church because they were trying to convince others that there was more to being saved than simply the blood of Christ. They loved the status they had held as Pharisees. They missed it. And they desired the same ultra-holy status that they had previously enjoyed. Friends, there is no ultra-holy status as a Christian. There is Jesus and there are saints. There isn't a strata or a caste system in the hierarchy of the Christian faith. We are all equal in the eyes of our Lord, equally loved, equally showered with grace, equally called to discipleship. These men were believers. It's plain here in this passage. But they didn't fully leave their prior beliefs. And this is a warning to us. We need to turn 180 degrees from a life that's a pursuit of self to a life in pursuit of Christ. We need to turn 180 degrees from indulging in our own desires and wants to a life where we pursue the sanctification that comes by submitting to the Holy Spirit. We need to turn from empty idols and turn to a living God. Faith in Christ is not a matter of adding something to our lives. Jesus is not an adornment or an accessory like a cool pair of shades or an expensive handbag. He must become what our life is about. When the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It is perfectly clear that salvation should bring a complete change. People should look at you and ask, what happened to you? You are so different. The last thing we should want to hear as believers is someone who has been part of our life say, you got saved? When did that happen? I haven't seen any difference. Another issue 
Paul and Barnabas had with these men from Jerusalem is they wanted to maintain the religiously proud mentality they had had as Pharisees. This, too, should be a warning for us. The religiously proud person puts their trust in what they do to establish if they are right with God or not. If your trust is in your deeds, regardless of how good they may be, then your trust is not in who? It's not in Jesus. It is easy to see the person who is a blatant sinner living a life full of lies, deceit, promiscuousness, cheating, and so forth. It's easy to spot them and to tell them, you need to turn away from all that. More difficult to see is the person who is religiously self-righteous because they probably outwardly do all things right. They give of their time, they tithe, they speak kindly. They seem like they are spiritual performers. And the truly frightening aspect of the spiritually righteous person is that they probably have convinced themselves, with the help of Satan, that they are righteous. But let me tell you this, if that describes you, you need to turn away too. You need to stop trusting in yourself and trust in Jesus. Whether it be your church attendance, your giving, whatever sacrifice you make, whatever it is you do that you are placing your trust in, you need to turn from that right now. Because I tell you, trusting in your own good works, which is human effort, will not set you right with your creator. Paul knew this. Paul had been a Pharisee. In his letter to the Philippians, he said, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee. And he goes on to say, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. See here, Paul is renouncing virtue. But I would argue it is more difficult to renounce virtue than vice. Paul freely with delight, discards all sources of self-confidence and self-righteousness so he can have Christ. Paul understood that Jesus doesn't help him do what a Pharisee does, only better. Jesus came to bring him salvation. Jesus came to make him right with God. Some people think it's up to them to get right with God. We hear people actually utter those words, I have to get right with God. It's not up to you to get right with God. Jesus will help you. Jesus makes you right with God. And that happens when you put your trust in him and what he did on the cross. In his letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, Paul said, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. These men, these believing Jews, wanted Gentiles to come to Jesus. But in effect, they were saying, yes, the Gentile can come to Jesus, but they have to become a Jew first. And if you think about this, it's really quite astounding that these men would remain so insistent on these matters after being confronted by Paul and by Barnabas. Paul's reputation, both pre and post salvation, was known throughout the region. 
His testimony of salvation surely would have been known, as well as recognition of the apostolic position and direct commissioning by Lord Jesus Christ himself that he had received. To stand counter to that is just tremendous arrogance. And this is powerful food for thought for each of us. Within each of us is a tendency to consider our, ourselves more highly than we consider others. How could we be wrong? I mean, I know this tendency within myself. Yet when faced with the authority, intellect, equipping, and appointment of Paul as an apostle, they chose to remain fixated on their own dogmas and refused to accept the correction. Now, I love this next section. Verse 6, it says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. These apostles and elders gathered, but we were told that here, we we're told here this is not a typical business-like session meeting. Far from it. It, would, it says right here that this were, there was much dispute. This was not a matter of we agree to disagree. This was an issue that had the potential to tear the church apart. And then Peter stands up and says it plain. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. These Jewish men focused on the law would say, you cannot eat bacon, you will defile yourself. The Gentile believer, having received the Holy Spirit, and having experienced adoption into the family of God, would say, my Jewish brother, if you wish to abstain from bacon because of your conscience, then you are right to do so. But I'm going to enjoy this delicious bacon, knowing that my heart is purified by faith, not by what I eat or don't eat. Again, why are these Jewish believers imposing additional constraints for salvation? If God himself from heaven had poured out his Holy Spirit upon some uncircumcised Gentiles, isn't that his stamp of approval? What more would they have to do? Who are we to expect more of them? God has already accepted them. Wow. And he goes on to say, as the Gentile is saved in the same manner, we shall be saved. The manner of salvation is the same whether Jew or Gentile. As the wretched sinner who is far from God is saved, so shall the person raised in a Christian home and steeped in Sunday school be saved. For us today, we need to realize that this truth is not that this truth is just as applicable to us. As Gentiles, we are the blessed recipients of God's grace and extending adoption into his family just like he has his chosen people. Likewise, we should never hold others to a stricter standard than what was applied by God to us. How many of us have witnessed churches 
to only welcome those who live just as they do. Again, that's not to say that fruit of sanctification shouldn't be present in those who receive salvation, but it does mean salvation is granted in many different states of unbelief and sin. We are all patients of spiritual brokenness and all require the healing work of Jesus in our lives. Some may need a stronger dose of sin antibiotic than others, but we all will continue to be patients of the healing work of the Holy Spirit until the day we are called home. If God receives someone, shouldn't we? That should be the measure by which we live. If God accepts you, I should accept you. Were you blessed to be raised in a Christian home and thus shielded from many of the woes of this life? How blessed you are. But being blessed does not make you better. Were you brought to salvation from the depths of an earthly, hellish existence? You are no different now, being made new than any other saint. Wealthy or poor, young or old, black or white, Jew or Gentile, all are but outward and insignificant attributes. We have the same Savior, our sins forgiven by the same blood, justified by the same righteousness, taken into the same family. As believers in Christ, we have but one condition, that of a redeemed sinner before a perfect and holy God. We have the same access to God, being built on the same foundation, enjoying the same privileges, and having the same hope of eternal glory. May every one of us remember the grace given to us and be united in our shared belief in Jesus Christ that it is his blood that redeems and only his blood. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we live in a world right now that is torn apart by division. At every term, turn, we see it seated more and more in society, and it's even reaching into the church now. God, I pray that you would, that your hand would, would uh, abate that from entering this church. I pray that daily we would remember that it is solely the blood of Christ that redeems and that is the only claim we can hold on to. We can't claim any spiritual advantage because of the life we've lived or haven't lived or where we've come from or whether we have church membership in this church or that church. Father, I pray that we would be resilient in speaking that truth in a world that detests it, in a world that wants to see us torn more apart. They, Faith in you would be the uniting factor for us. And Father, I pray once again for our society. Your love is the healing salve our community and nation needs. And Father, I pray that we would be effective appliers of that salve. And we pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.